So it was actually 10 p.m. on April 10th, 1919, that an inaugural meeting of the provisional government opened. It ran for 12 hours, though, and was followed by the establishment of the Korean provisional government in Shanghai the next day, April 11th, exactly 100 years ago. And even if we weren't able to track down the historical heritage all the way to Shanghai, we were able to head to the National Museum in Seoul to create this special content to shed a bright light on this history. Well, it's wonderful to be here under a bright blue afternoon sky to check out the National Museum of Korea in Yongsan and a special exhibition titled From Empire to Republic. Just coming to this museum is impressive from the outside. The grounds are beautiful. You've got traditional gardens, but you've also got this incredibly futuristic building that seems to be making a statement all on its own. But let's head inside and see what all the buzz is about with the crowds I can see milling inside around this special exhibition. So we've made our way through into the museum itself through the security check and round to this side room which is titled Centennial Anniversary of March 1st Independence Movement and Korea Provisional Government from Empire to Republic. And it tells a fascinating story. Thankfully for me, alongside me to help us learn that story is Sarah Bush, lecturer for International School Programme at the National Museum of Korea. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you for having me. So the first thing that strikes me is actually probably the second in line of the exhibits, because we have a print of the constitution of the Korean Empire, but alongside that we have this old, brown, stained piece of paper, Declaration of Independence. So tell us more about that. Well, the last Chosun king declared Korea to be an empire in an attempt to keep foreign countries from coming in and taking over Korea. There had been a discussion about national sovereignty for quite some time, and his attempt was, in calling Korea an empire, make sure that other countries respected the country's integrity because he saw an encroachment from the Japanese government. This particular document is the Declaration of Independence that took place in March of 1919, which was nine years after Japan had officially taken control of the country. But incidentally, it wasn't until the Paris Peace Conference ending World War I and then the death of this king that the Korean national people rose up to create this declaration and they peaceably marched in the cities all throughout the peninsula against the Japanese government. Aside from the odd stain that I mentioned before, it's in remarkably good condition, by the way. Yes, it is. The National Museum does an incredible job of maintaining the integrity of works and pieces that have been damaged in the past in order to be able to have them for a heritage for the future. And then if we keep moving along, we find the Constitutional Charter of the Provisional Government of the Republic of Korea from 1919 as well. And we also have some sheet music here. And this is the national anthem of the Korean Empire. And I understand the tune here is Old Lang Syne. Yes. Um, There are several versions of the national anthem that happened. One of them said that it was a country belonging to the empire and the emperor, and the other said that it was a country belonging to the people. And that was the option that was selected, because by this point in time, the empire had been dissolved by Japan, and it was the people standing up to the Japanese occupation that caused this push for a whole other country to be established as the Republic of Korea. 
And we now have alongside us this really fascinating exhibit. It's actually a reenactment of a conference room with place names set up. Can we just take a seat here? Yes, uh, this... please do. So we're sitting at the table and we can actually see some name places. Can you tell us who these figures are? Yes, these are the nameplates for the key figures that were part of the provisional government. In 1919, as a result of the movement towards independence here in Korea, they established a provisional government in Shanghai. And this temporary government was facilitating conversations between other countries on behalf of the Korean people who couldn't speak for themselves inside the peninsula. And so this recreation of their conference room is dealing with some of the main people to include Kim Gu, An Jong-ho, who were uh, provisional leaders because this was an elected position. One quick point as well about this conference room. We have a map. We can't go through all the locations, but it just shows us the amazingly long journey through China from 1919 to 1940 of the provisional government. The provisional government was forced to move around. In 1919, it was in a French consular area that had been given to the French in Shanghai, and therefore it was outside of the control of China. By the 1940s, the Japanese government was following closely the movements and the decision-making of this provisional government because the independence movement was spreading and the desire for national sovereignty was spreading throughout the Korean Peninsula, and it forced the provisional government to move all throughout China. Right then, now on the opposite wall, we've got a, a line of certificates and paperwork. Actually, I think I can see in the near distance some underwear, which you're going to have to tell us about in a second. Yes, definitely. Um, but right in front of us is some interesting paperwork because it suggests how this provisional government was funded. Yes, one of the things that Japan did when they first came in was take over the treasury. So there was no way to fund any kind of government outside. And these documents actually are documents that were from Koreans who were outside of the peninsula because they bought treasury bonds that would then go to the provisional government. Many of the Koreans who were the first wave or the first Korean diaspora to Hawaii would send back their very meager earnings to be able to support Korean independence movement. So that's what these documents are about people in Los Angeles people in Hawaii and other countries sending money anonymously because they didn't want their families to get in trouble, but still doing their best from outside the country to support independence. So next to the U.S. announcement of Japanese surrender, we've jumped to 1945, we've got a 1948 secret letter written in a format that I don't think I've ever seen before. Yes, this is highly unusual. This is a pair of men's underwear, and this was worn by a man who was in the northern portion of Korea, because in 1945, the country was temporarily divided to be able to be supported by other countries. So there was kind of a border that was there even before the Korean War. And essentially, this man said in this note, he wrote this to Kim Gyu saying, please do the very best that you can to not let foreigners not let ourselves, not let anyone divide the peninsula. I've spent my whole life fighting for independence. I can't remember a time when I wasn't fighting for independence. Please, as you meet with people that are in the north, with the south, with other diplomats, please unite us rather than divide us. And that was Kim Yu's heart 
was to have one peninsula, not two different countries. Sadly, it did divide into two different countries because the next exhibit is a collection of letters that he then takes and translates this request and he speaks of the importance of unity and unification as a whole peninsula rather than allowing them to be supported by others after the colonial removal from the presence there. My name is Chang Suyan. This exhibition shows the link between our independence movement and the Korean Republic and how it has led to the current democratic society. I think it's very meaningful. I'm Kim Soo-min from Gwangju. There's not much opportunity for people to learn about Korea's modern history, but with this exhibition, I was able to grasp the immense sacrifice to create one independent country, and it's really touched me. Okay, so we've raced around here and we've come back to the entrance slash exit. What advice would you have, even for those from abroad who don't know too much about this history? I feel like most foreigners are more aware of the Korean War and they're not aware of the independence movement that was underpinning a government that was trying to become a world power. To me, walking through here, seeing the actual articles, uh, we also went past a whole section talking about how the women said, even as women, we deserve the right to freedom. Our children deserve the right to freedom. And I think that's something that is world throughout. It touches all of us. Uh, In the study of history, in the study of politics, and looking at the future, we all want something better for our children. And I think this room really represents the sacrifice that individuals made, the selflessness that they took on, recognizing that their one choice could be something that makes a difference enough for the country to have independence. And so to me, this is a not a memorial, but in many ways a way that you can just thoughtfully think about your own life and the impact that you're making as well as appreciate those who have suffered greatly for the success of this country that we get to call home as guests, as well as for those who are outside of Korea wanting to visit. Sarah Bush, lecturer for the International School Programme at the National Museum of Korea. Thank you so much for taking the time to give us a private tour. I hope that you enjoyed it and that you'll come back and visit again. Well, it's great for people living nearby. It's very close to Ichon subway station. Come down here, the National Museum of Korea. Now, the zeitgeist of the Korean provisional government may have featured great bravery in the face of Japanese colonial subjugation, but it also lacked international recognition. It took decades and the special circumstances of World War II to achieve freedom, and even then at the cost of the peninsula's division, a subject that remains sore, with President Moon Jae-in meeting American leader Donald Trump this week. And for a deeper look back, we have a specialist in Korean history on the line, Professor Ken Wells from the Department of History at the University of Canterbury. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So in the early 1900s, the idea of popular sovereignty must have been very foreign to most of the ordinary people in Korea. 
How did the aspiration to establish a democratic republic develop among independence movement leaders? It actually began quite early, um, in the middle of the 19th century, and then, of course, later on, with the Kahwadang, or Reform Party, and the Tonga Piopuea Independence Club. And there were various movements to emancipate the lower classes, and so the general populace was beginning to hear ideas about popular participation in government too. And the Tonghak movement might have played some role, but we need to be careful to distinguish populism from democracy. But the idea did gather quite a lot of strength as young men and women returned from studying abroad in the early 20th century, mainly from Japan, the United States and Europe. And there they heard about or they witnessed democratic politics firsthand. And when after 1910 the Korean monarchy had been ended by the Japanese occupation, very few Koreans seemed to want to restore the Korean monarchy. And they looked for other options, and by that stage, and especially by 1919, many favoured a republican democracy. And of course the strongest world powers were mostly democratic, and so they thought this was an ideal example. Syngman Rhee was chosen as the first president of the provisional government in Shanghai. He was replaced by Park Geun-shik in 1925. Of course, uh, Rhee would go on to play a key role post-Japanese colonial rule. Um, and, but then Park was succeeded by Kim Gu the following year. And among these, we do associate, I think, often the provisional government with Kim Gu most significantly. How, how do you establish and, and evaluate his leadership? Well, of course, there were several other men who served as president of the provisional government, but Kim Koo was president when Korea was liberated from Japan. And I think this is one reason he is associated in some Koreans' minds today with the provisional government most. But governments in exile are actually extremely difficult to run, and they're rarely successful. And I don't think Kim Koo was able to achieve very much certainly not what he wanted to. He was for a while able to gain support from the Chinese Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, and that was partly because he, like them, was very much on the right wing. But that ended quite soon when Japan pressured China to stop supporting him. And when he returned to Korea in August 1945, he worked very hard with Choman Shik to organise a united political body representing all Koreans. And so that was a very popular move. And uh, he worked very hard, and in the end he was assassinated, as in fact was Choman Shik. And both these leaders and many other leaders failed, mainly because of the trusteeship problem that arose in December 1945. And then there was this problem of international recognition that I referred to before. Can you explain why the Korean Provisional Government didn't sufficiently gain that? Well, it is true. The Provisional Government did not gain formal recognition from the United States or the United Kingdom and most other world powers. But the main reason was that in 1919... Japan, which was an ally of the victorious powers in World War I, 
was recognised as the legitimate ruler over not only Korea, but all its other colonies, including, for example, Taiwan. Mm. Now, Britain, France and the United States had their own colonies. And so they didn't really have any desire to criticise Japan for having colonies, let alone recognise a second government when they had already recognised Japan. Now, the provisional government did gain recognition from China and also Poland, um, and by 1944 from the Soviet Union. And it seems that towards the end of the war, France was talking about recognition of the provisional government too. But the war finished before that could happen. So provisional governments just have a very hard time, and it takes quite a long time um, for them to gain recognition. And respect, it seems, as well, because during U.S military rule in 1945, John Hodge, the, the first U.S. forces commander in Korea, actually described Kim Gutu's staff as the salt needed for the stew. I mean, you could probably, you could probably <laughs> yeah. spin that in a positive direction, but it certainly seems to downplay his significance as a national leader. Uh, was there a problem then with perception whether these provisional government leaders were equipped or able to rule a country? Well, I don't think it's that the provisional government leaders were not ready or not competent. Rather, they were not the only Koreans claiming leadership credentials. They were, in fact, just one group among several. And, in fact, the Koreans were rather divided in August 1945. Um, the ideological conflict had surfaced already in the 1920s, mm -hmm. really intensified during the 1930s, and by 1945, relations between rivals really had deteriorated to a point where any national liberation would entail some sort of showdown between the leaders. Now, there were attempts to contain this showdown. Um, the Korean People's Republic, for example, was established in September 1945. And in order to bring all the leading figures together, the cabinet was appointed that included Kim Gu and Lee Seung-man, but also Kim Il-sung and Ho Han from the north and Kim Yushik. But then just two days later, the Korean Communist Party was formed. Kim Gu founded the Korean Independence Party. Lee Seung-man founded the Korean Democratic Party and Cho Man-shik founded the Joseon Democratic Party. So... Although General Hodge might be faulted for not recognising Korean leadership, and that was a bad problem, still it has to be said that such leadership was by no means clear. And in the end, both in the North and the South, the leader that took control was not one who had lived on the peninsula. Both Kim Il-sung and Lee Seung-man came in from long years abroad. So I don't think it's just that the provisional government leaders were not equipped. It's just they were among many others who were jostling for recognition. We're pretty much out of time, Professor Wells, but in 30 seconds or so, do you feel the spirit of the provisional government still alive today, 100 years on? Um, well, it's certainly not alive in North Korea, but um, it may be more so in the South, although I'm not sure what people generally think about it. I don't hear them talk about it much. But I do think that it does stand as one example 
of Koreans getting together and sacrificing their time and sometimes their lives to resolve the national situation of Korea themselves. And so I think it could be taken as a good example of not relying on other powers, not trying to, or not letting other powers interfere, but taking responsibility themselves for finding their own solutions. Professor Wells... The Korean problems belong to the Koreans. Thank you, Professor Wells, for sharing that message. Really good to have you on the line. Well, thank you very much. Perhaps that spirit is still needed most sorely in North Korea. We're going to continue this theme in just a few moments this morning.